Please let's turn to Romans chapter 8, first of all, and Hebrews chapter 9. Romans 8 and Hebrews 9. We're going to do a little blending today of Romans and Hebrews. It blends very well. Thank you kindly for that. Pam was right. My wife was right. She said, Ricky sings good when she's... <laughs> she heard you back there. With the appointment of new deacons and deaconess, and with more to come, I think, we have to recognize that our assembly is in itself a diaconate, a ministry of servants. We are all that. And the deacons or the deacon board is arranged precisely for what I call organized benevolence to be aware of needs within and without, because in this time in between, not only is our great archpriest at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, having made one sacrifice for sins, but he's also seen in this time in between where he is concealed to us, he is seen in the needy, the least of these, my brothers, my brothers, my siblings, those who need assistance, those that need a visit, those that need lodging, clothing, the naked, the needy in every way. And as much as you did this to the least of these, you did it to me. The Lord will say this in his appearing. And we have much to say on that score from Matthew 25 very soon. We live in an imminent expectation. That's never changed. Our doctrine on the final things has changed. But our doctrine of imminent expectation of Jesus Christ has not changed. The church fails in its mission if it fails to live in the imminent expectation of the parousia, his consummation. When he comes, he consummates that which he inaugurated with his resurrection. And these are the two great events between the resurrection and the parousia. We live in what I call, in all caps, TIB, the time in between. And it's an extraordinary time and a time of faith, a time of love, and a time of hope. And that hope is an imminent expectation we are not expecting the disappearance of a bunch of people in a rapture, which is a false doctrine, and I'm pretty close to calling it a heresy, and unfortunately a very popular doctrine. But when God sends Jesus to this earth, it is for the apocatastasis panton, the restoration of all things. And it is at his parousia where he reveals and makes universal the saving act that occurred in his death and the victory which was manifested in his resurrection. And so today I want to consider that the removal of sin is also the condemnation of sin. And I call this sin per se, sin itself, sin in its essence, sin in its very essence was condemned in Jesus Christ. It was put away by the sacrifice of Christ. There is no good news that you have to insert your own arrogance and say, ah, but there's bad news. The moment a preacher does that, he's already undercut the whole essence of the gospel, the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I realize I've started the message today by slapping down two popular <laughs> doctrines, so uh, let it be. Let's look at first at Romans 8, and I want to interpret Romans in the light of Hebrews and Hebrews in the light of Romans. In your light, God, we see light. It is true that the only way to interpret Scripture is to compare Scripture with Scripture and also to do a thorough, minute exegesis. And that's what we have before us. Romans 8 begins with the famous, consequently, and this is my expanded translation to give the sense. Again, that's the job of the preacher, to stand in a pulpit and to read the scriptures and give the sense of them so that the congregation 
can understand them and go away with the strength of the Lord being, or the joy of the Lord being their strength. The scriptures are rightly exegeted to help the joy of the listener, to be the preacher, therefore, as a helper of your joy. He's not the cause of it, but the helper of it. And if you look to anybody to be the cause of your joy, you will be radically disappointed in them, and you'll be under the curse that Jeremiah said, cursed is everyone who trusts in the flesh and makes flesh their arm. You can't do it. You can't put ultimate confidence in people to be the source of your happiness. So if you marry somebody thinking they'll be the source of your happiness, you've already put them under an intolerable burden, and that's not going to be a fun marriage. So we, all we can do is help one another's joy, and the preacher does that. As Jesus did, I've spoken these things, he said to you, that your joy, my joy, will be in you. He speaks the word to transfer his own joy, his own joy in victory to us, and that as a result, your joy would be made full. And that's 2 Corinthians one twenty four joins with that and says that we preachers are helpers of your joy. So we tell you good news, glad tidings, not good news that you have to interject your own idea of bad news. And so I'm here to preach good news. There is in good news, however, and in the gospel and in the teaching of the word, sometimes profound conviction. There are several reasons why people get mad today. They get mad because, well, they're convicted of something and they're resisting it. People often will get angry at you if they're convicted of the truth that you believe that you may have reported to them in love, but they begin to react in anger because the truth is confronted them, but they're resisting it. And that resistance of the truth causes their anger. There are other reasons for anger, but we know this, the anger of man never accomplishes the righteousness of God. I don't know why I said that, but I did. So Romans 8, let the Spirit do what he will do with it. Consequently, there exists now. Now this word now in the scripture must be understood in God's time. Good, good choice of song today, Victoria. God's time. Consequently, there exists in the forever going now. That's a nunc stans, as the Latin puts it. The ever ongoing now. And now that is today, was yesterday, will be tomorrow. It's Jesus' time, the time of Jesus Christ. There exists in the forever ongoing now, I would translate this rightly, no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. But as we know, all are in Christ Jesus who were once in Adam. And so there's a universality to this. Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life, please note the word law here because it has many meanings depending on the context. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has freed you from the law of sin and death. That's freed you from having to serve the law of sin with your flesh, as Romans 7.25 says. It means, again, this law of the spirit of life. And law there doesn't mean a code of things and demands that you must do, but the law there means an operative power. The operative power of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has liberated you from the operative power of sin and death. And so the idea is you have been freed from having to serve the law of sin with your flesh, your weak humanity. And it's liberated you to serve the law, the demand and will of God with your new resurrected mind. Your new resurrected mind with its mind on things above is already inclined to do the will of God. And what God wills and demands, God gives in fellowship with his son. Now, Paul deploys many meanings to the word flesh and law. Depending on the context, flesh can mean the suprahuman operative power that opposes the spirit, for the spirit desires against 
the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. Their flesh isn't our weakness or our human weakness. It's actually a suprahuman operative power called the flesh. And it opposes the spirit and the spirit opposes the flesh. That's Galatians 5:17. That's the story told also in Romans 8, 1 to 14, which we're not going to reach to all of that today. Sometimes the flesh, sarks, refers to human weakness, depending again on context, or to our present existence in mortal bodies, which is inherently weak and strengthless. Sometimes it refers to all living beings. Many times you'll see in the scriptures, all flesh, which is under God's redemptive saving plan. So it refers to all living beings of the created kind in 1 Corinthians 15, 40, it talks about human, animal, fish, and fowl of all kinds of flesh. A few very significant times, flesh refers exclusively to the flesh in which God was incarnate in Jesus Christ. And that's very important. Twice at least, it refers to the flesh in which Jesus Christ, God and man, was manifested in resurrection. Go ahead, he said, touch me and see that I am flesh and bone. Flesh, resurrected flesh, transcorporeal flesh, incorruptible flesh, immortal flesh, the flesh of the Son of God. And that's what 1 Timothy 3.16 is referring to when it says manifested in the flesh. That's divinity manifested in the flesh. So sometimes you have to see that word flesh as referring uniquely to the flesh of the resurrected Christ. That's ultimately what John 1.14 means. The word became flesh, and we beheld his glory, glory that can only be that of the only begotten Son of God. And in 1 John 1, 1, we heard that flesh, that word in the flesh, we touched and heard and saw that word in the flesh, referring ultimately to Jesus Christ in resurrection, where for 40 days he appeared with his disciples, speaking to them of the kingdom of God, manifesting God in the flesh. Paul speaks in Romans 7.25, which is why we get Romans 8.1, of serving the law of sin in his weak human flesh. Our weak human flesh, unaided by the Spirit, can do nothing but serve the law of sin. We're under that power irresistible power as far as we go. And so he said, with the flesh, I serve the law of sin and death. But then again in Romans seven twenty-five, of serving the law of God, which is what God wills and demands with his mind, meaning that he now has already a resurrected and renewed mind. And thus Paul shows in Romans seven twenty-five the paradoxes, the complications, and even sometimes the cognitive dissonance and contradictions that we have in our lives in these mortal bodies. We fail, we sin, we falter, we have a lot of problems, but we also have triumphs and successes in the Holy Spirit, and we endure sufferings which are not able to be compared with the glory that shall follow. So Paul is talking about that, and while this is all going on, there is no condemnation awaiting us in Christ Jesus for the reason that is going to be explained in a moment. Now, as Paul's use of the word law sometimes also means, depending on context, the Mosaic law or the law given at Mount Sinai and thereafter, and that includes the law of the Levitical cultus, the law of sacrifices, the law of offerings, which is, comes into play so heavily in Hebrews. So Paul sometimes uses that word law, and that includes the law given through Moses at Sinai and thereafter, including the law of ordinances for the Levitical cultus. Now that's important for us to recognize as we interpret this verse. Sometimes law then means operative power or active principle. So that, there, for example, we say the law of gravity. That's not a code of what you should do or not do. That's something that happens because of the active power of gravitation and gravitational pull. That's a law, but it's an active power. 
the power of aviation that overcomes the law of gravity is also an operative power. As aviation operates in a powerful way to overcome the law of gravity, so the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, who raised Jesus from the dead, overcomes the operative power of sin and death and does so practically in our lives in a higher integration of human living in Christ Jesus by God's grace. And so operative power. Now there is the operative power of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, the operative or active power of the law of sin and death, and we see these two in opposition in Romans 8.2. With the law of the spirit of the life, being victorious over the law of sin and death. It's a victory that thanks to sin being condemned in the flesh of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, on the cross at the close of the days of his flesh, has been victorious. The law of the spirit of life, victorious over the law of sin and death, it's a victory thanks to the fact that sin was condemned, sin itself. I like to call it sin per se, S-I-N-P-E-R-S-E, three words, sin per se, sin itself, which contemplates all sins of all time ever committed, ever committed by omission or commission. And so the law, the operative power of life, by the Holy Spirit, which raised Jesus from the dead, Romans 1.4, Romans 8.11, has completely overpowered the operative power of sin and death, thus freeing us from the latter power. We are free from that latter power for a spiritual life. So now let's blend. This is something that hasn't been done in commentaries that I've seen. But if we blend Romans with Hebrews and understand Paul's many uses of the word flesh and many uses of the word law, we get this. Look at Romans 8.3. For what the law could not do. Now that's the law. The law, in this case, it's the law of Moses with its ordinances and its regulations for sacrifices, which appoints men as high priests who are weak. Same word used in Hebrews 7.28 that's used here. The law was weak through the flesh. The law of ordinances of the Levitical cultus and the offerings and sacrifices, whole burnt offerings and holocausts. We're going to look at all four of those kinds of sacrifices when we get to Hebrews 10.6 through 8. What the law, now let's look at this. What does it mean? It's the law of Moses with its ordinances and which appoints men as high priests who are weak. What the law could not do, we could say as we're learning in Hebrews, what the law involving sacrifices of animals, offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, all the holocausts or whole burnt offerings, what that law could not do. What couldn't it do? It couldn't remove sin. It couldn't take away sin per se. It could ritually purify the conscience, but it could not do the ultimate thing. What the law could not do, because being weak, it says, being weak because of the flesh. Here we have law and flesh again. What the law could not do, being weak because of the flesh. We could refer to this as sacrifices offered by weak high priests, including the whole burnt offering offered according to the law, which could not consume the old man, the man of sin. It could not do it. A holocaust or a whole burnt offering offered under the law could not consume the old man sometimes called the old sin nature. It consumed an animal, and it was representative of what was about to happen when Jesus Christ came, and in his whole burnt offering, the man of sin himself, the old man, was consumed and went up in smoke and flames. The law couldn't do that, but look at, I love how this develops. What the law could not do, being weak because of the flesh, God did. God did sending his son 
in the likeness of sinful what? Flesh. The likeness, homeomate means he looked like a sinner just like everybody else in his appearance. He looked like sinful flesh. He wasn't sinful flesh. He knew no sin. He had no sin. There was no sin nature in him. He was pure, and he, he is, is pure, as 1 John 3, 3 says. He is without sin, as Hebrews 4, 15 says. He was separate from sinners and undefiled, as Hebrews 7, 26 says. He was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God in an indestructible life making intercession for us. And so what the law could not do, and we refer to that to Hebrews, the law with all of its ordinances for sacrifices, God did, sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. This should be interpreted as for a sin offering. And for sin, meaning for a sin offering. And so Hebrews comes into play here in the interpretation of it. So God did, sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for a sin offering, condemned sin. Condemned sin. That sin itself was condemned. God did that. Sacrifices offered by the weak archpriests of the old covenant under the Levitical law, ending with Caiaphas, and Caiaphas made the big blasphemy when he said to the Lord, are you the Christ? And Jesus said, you said it. And you shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with the, at the right hand of the power of God. He was referring to his crucifixion and resurrection there that will be consummated in his parousia. We have much more to say about that. God condemned sin. In that flesh, the net note got this right, the New English translation of the Bible, the net note got it right in its note. It should be condemned sin in that flesh. What flesh? The likeness of sinful flesh that Jesus Christ came in. His flesh. God condemned sin in his flesh. And so in that flesh, that's the flesh of his son, the word himself, God, who became flesh and who in his death became sin. Second Corinthians 5.21 uses another dramatic depiction. He became sin. God condemned sin in the flesh of the one who became sin and in becoming sin was condemned or judged for us in our place as the sin which he had become was condemned and therefore put away, expiated, annulled, carried off, never to be considered again. Now the reason that I interpret in the flesh in Romans 8.3, and a lot of translations don't do this, but I interpret as in the flesh in Romans 8.3 as in the flesh of the word made flesh. That's what we should interpret this as. In the flesh of the word made flesh. The reason I interpreted that is because first, and you'll see this in print if you're interested, the phrase ente sarki in the Greek is to be understood as in that flesh. God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and in that flesh, the very flesh of his son, the Lamb of God condemned sin. He condemned sin itself in the flesh of his son. And Paul put it, it's hard to put this into words, which is why Paul said, he who knew no sin became sin, was made to be sin, that we would be made the very righteousness of God in him. Paul had to use extraordinary use of language to describe this indescribable, incomprehensible event of divine love. The second reason, well, first of all, I say I interpret in the flesh to be the son of God's flesh because as Philippians 2.7 also says, he who was in the very essence and form of God 
came in the likeness of human flesh, the likeness of a man, the likeness of a sinful man without being sinful. In Philippians 2.7, the likeness meaning the likeness but not the reality of sinful flesh. Flesh, yes. Sinful flesh, no. En homaiomate sarcos. Second, I interpret it this way by comparing scripture with scripture. Now, you might even do well to at least note this, but maybe even turn there if you got real fast fingers, and that's Colossians 1.21. Colossians 1.21 to 22. Now, someone says, well, you can't really interpret that as in his flesh. Well, wait, why not? First of all, I'll explain why internally, because it says in that flesh, referring to the flesh that God became in his son in the incarnation. But secondly, and even more powerfully, Colossians 1.21 to 22a says, and you were formerly estranged and hostile in mind because of your evil actions, but now, in verse 22, that is, again, in the ongoing present, you are reconciled in the body of his flesh, in the body of his flesh, or we could even say by the body of his flesh through death. That's his death that we participate in by grace, in the body of Whose flesh? His flesh. God condemned sin per se, sin itself, in his flesh. The flesh of the Son of God, the sinless Son of God. So notice it says, in the body of his flesh. That is Christ's body of flesh. What am I doing here? I'm determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Is that okay with you? If it isn't, too bad. Now. It says, in the body of his flesh, that is Christ's body of flesh. I can't say, like I heard a preacher say on TV recently, ah, oh, but there's bad news. No, there isn't. You can't add any bad news to that. That eradicates all bad news. In the body of his flesh, God condemned sin per se. Yours, mine, everybody's sin. We were... And are now reconciled to God by a reconciliation that occurred in the body of the flesh of the eternal word made flesh. John 1.14. Through death. That is Christ's death for sin. Christ's death as the sin offering of all sin offerings. Christ's death in which the one who knew no sin became sin. Christ's death as the experience of the wages of sin for everyone. He, Jesus, the righteous one, died for the unrighteous, everybody else. In his death, he experienced the wages of sin. There is only one human death that died in the experience of the wages or the payment of sin, and that's Jesus Christ. When you die, when I die, if I die, if you die, you die not as a result of sin. You die as the natural end of your life as a witness on this earth. That's how God brings you to himself. It is not because of your sin or because of sins. Jesus is the only one who died the incomprehensible, and I mean impossible to understand the depth and even the horror of that death. He died the death that is the wages of sin in Romans 6.23 for everyone, for everyone. And he did that far from God when he cried out, my God, my God, why are you so far from helping me in Psalm 22? He was God himself in the flesh, far from God in an unbelievably unique paradox and paradox is something that is extraordinary. Paradox means two opposite things can happen in a dimension higher than this and be reconciled. And we're getting into the study of paradox someday soon, maybe, also. But he endured the only singular death, which is the wages of sin. Nobody dies the death as a wage for sin. You and I, death is really like the world says. It's a natural part of life. It's how this life in this world for witnesses of Jesus Christ who are here for that one purpose, 
ends, we come to our end in death, and death has lost its sting. It's our way to be removed into the presence of God, into the presence of Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So yes, when we leave this body, we enter into Jesus' time, the time of Jesus Christ. We enter into him, and entering into him, we are in the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The climactic verse of Hebrews in one sense, another climactic verse in Hebrews 13.8. That means that when we die, it's not a matter of getting a resurrected body down the road some way in the last day. This is the last day. This is the last day. When people leave this body, they enter into God's time, meaning they enter into Jesus who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, so they are already present in resurrected bodies in future world. So don't expect your, that your loved ones that are there are waiting for you. They're not waiting for you. To them, you're already there with them. They inhabit the future with God who inhabits the future. We are locked into a perception of time that is distorted and even perverted by sin. And so we don't understand these things. And so to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord who is present to the past, the present, and the future. And therefore, it is to be present to the future and future world already. And so it's not a matter of them up there waiting for us, wait till they come. They're already there with us inhabiting the future. They're in eternal time, in perfect time, in God's time, in Jesus Christ who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Does that bend your mind? Good. I hope it bends it toward the Lord. And it takes away all the natural things that we think. think we think naturally. We perceive with the natural mind, with the mind of nature. We, re, we perceive time as a linear line. We call it a time line. There is no time line in heaven. There is a field of time which is inhabited entirely by God. Jesus Christ inhabits all time. All time is in him. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. To leave this body is to be in him who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. How can I explain that? I don't know, but I'll take a lot of time doing it in the future if the Lord gives me time and breath and breathing and life. And so, sometimes we die, but we keep on living because God lives for us. We think about living for God. I think about God living for me. We think about serving God. I think about Jesus Christ being the servant of God in me. Otherwise, I'd be very discouraged, and I would be thinking of my failures all the time. I do that enough anyways. So notice again that it's in the body of his flesh. We were and are now reconciled to God by a reconciliation that occurred in the body of the flesh of the eternal word made flesh through death. That's Christ's death for sin. Christ's death in which the one who knew no sin became sin. Christ's death as the experience of the wages of sin for everyone without exception. Christ's self-sacrifice by which sin per se, sin in itself and in essence, was put away having been condemned in his flesh. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself as the sinless Messiah was being made sin per se, and as sin per se was being put away, condemned in the body of his flesh through the death of the cross, in which Jesus and Jesus alone and no other man or woman experienced the wages of sin that is a unique and incomprehensible death for everyone. You're never going to die the death that is the wage of sin. He did. The foundation of universal salvation is right here. Right here. We're talking about the foundation of universal salvation. As Moltmann put it so well, and I've quoted this passage many times, maybe some of you will remember it. He said this, The true Christian foundation for the hope of universal salvation is the theology of of the cross and the realistic consequence of the theology of the cross 
can only be the restoration of all things. Jurgen Moltmann, if he's still alive, he's 96. I think he still is. I look him up every once in a while. I sent him a thank you letter, never answered back. I'll hold that against him until I die. Now, the foundation of universal and of eternal and diachronic salvation is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, lately, you've probably heard some of our messages, incidentally, that I've selected for Wednesday night. Some of them go way back to 2008 with lenses. Some of them go to 2009 with P-Tackle, the principles of transcendent precepts applied to Christian living. Some of them may go back to John, the fourth G. Uh, some of them may go back to 2008, 9, 10. Please caveat, warning. A lot of those messages were given before I had the insight of justification of all by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, before I got to USSJC. So think of it this way. Those messages are worth salvaging because there are many things to be gleaned from them, and that's why I selected them. Secondly, glean from them. And cut me some slack because we were on the way to insights we now have fully developed or are fully developing but weren't all the way there so cut me some slack there recognize we were on the way somewhere and glean because there are many things worth preserving in what the spirit was saying to the churches through a very imperfect vessel so the many of the p-tackle messages and, and those kind of messages will be put up and that's what I want you to understand about it so don't be confused so the foundation of universal and eternal and diachronic, that means salvation that take, covers all of time and all of places, is Jesus Christ in him crucified. That is the reality, with a capital R, R, that canceled sin per se, that canceled sins in toto, all of them, that abolished enmity and hostility, that made peace in Colossians 1.20 and Ephesians 2.14-15, that resulted in the reconciliation of the world to God and of all things in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible to him and to each other. That is the reality that is, in a word, Jesus. And no other reality but Jesus. Now we should add, per Bart, I'm reading a couple hundred pages in Bart on the subject of time in church dogmatics. He refused to call it Christian dogmatics because of the way the word Christian was used in a lighthearted manner, if you can only see today. CD, church dogmatics, volume three, point two, page 498 of 9200 page church dogmatics. I was reading on my porch. As long as I got good days, I read on the porch, and I had the book on my rail of my porch, and a man and his wife I've seen for years walking through Oakmont. They're very trim and slender people because they walk for about eight hours a day. <laughs> but finally, the man stopped, and he's, I think he had a German accent, and he says, what book are you reading? And I said, really? I'm reading a theology book by a Swiss theologian named Karl Barth. And he said, well, how, how long is this? It looks like a very thick book. I said, it is a thick book, but there are many more books like it. And it's 9,200 pages. And he said, do you plan on reading all of it? And I said, yes, but I'm 72 now. And if God gives me time, I'll finish it. But that I'll probably be 92 by that time. But he was very interested in his wife, and they were both kind of like very interested. So I'm looking forward to a few more sunny days so I can talk to that wonderful couple about Karl Barth and summarize the 9,200 pages in a, in a brief conversation, <laughs> which would be simply, reality is Jesus. Now, we should add what Barth said then. Barth said this about the death of Jesus Christ. He said his goal is not just death. Although this is the saving event to which his whole life was in the first instance directed. 
His goal is the subsequent revelation of the meaning of his death. And therefore, the putting into effect of the salvation, one in him, W-O-N, for men, that is for all humankind, for the community, for the whole world, for which he had come as the fulfiller of time. I'll read that again quickly. His goal is not just death, although this is the saving event to which his whole life was in the first instance directed. His goal is the subsequent revelation of the meaning of his death, and therefore the putting into effect of the salvation won in him for men, for the community, for the whole world, for which he had come as the fulfiller of time. This is a quote, one, in 200 pages I could find what I call QQ in my notes, quotable quote. I could do about 300 quotes in that 200 pages. So I have to be very selective in quoting brief quotes, and that's one that I think fits in today's message. God put away sin, therefore, by condemning sin in the sinless flesh of Jesus. Therefore, Jesus is the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world, the cosmos. This reality will be fully and universally revealed at the second appearing of our great archpriest, the epiphany of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Titus 2.13, the source of such a great and eternal and universal salvation. The reason I interpreted for sin here as a sin offering is because Romans 8, 31 to 32 on the other end of Romans describes this same act as the act of God not sparing his son, that is, from becoming a sacrifice. It's referring back to Isaac, who was spared of, to become a sacrifice because Abraham was about to sacrifice him. That son of Abraham, Isaac, was spared. Jesus was not spared, that is, from being a sacrifice. So interpreting Romans 8.3 as the sin offering is because of what it says at the other end of Romans where it talks about he, became, he was handed over for us all, and that chimes with Jesus' experience, death for everyone by the grace of God or far from God, because God had handed him over for us all. Now, people who object to this idea of Jesus dying in our place or dying and becoming sin in our place or becoming a curse, they think it's too harsh of language because they think that we perceive God the Father as being cruel and giving his son in this way. But we are to understand God the Father here not as cruelly offering his son to suffer such an incomprehensible doom. First of all, God gave himself in giving his son. God was in Christ during the reconciling act of God in which Christ, the sinless one, was made sin. God was in Christ when Christ was being made sin. It isn't a cruel father giving a son over to a cruel fate. It's the father accompanying the son in this incomprehensible payment for sin. God was in Christ during the reconciling act in which Christ, the sinless one, was made sin. Second, God's son willingly gave himself for us. He was not forced into this by his father. This act, which we abbreviate as the cross of Christ in Galatians 5.11, or the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ in Galatians 6.14, is an act of totally free and unfathomable love. Voluntary love. He gave his son so that no one should perish. In fact, John 3.16, conflated with 2 Peter 3.9, would read this way. For God loved the world in this unfathomable way. He gave his son so that none should perish and all would come to repentance. That's a comparison or a conflation, a mixing, a blending of John 3.16 with 2 Peter 3.9. And Jesus gave himself for us so that we would live by his faithfulness, the faithfulness of the Son of God, Galatians 2.20. That's love. He loved me and gave himself for me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. 
That's love, and that's reality, and that is the reality that is Jesus. I dare you to put a tagline on that and say, oh, but there's bad news. There is bad news. You're a preacher. It may have once been bad news that we were all sinners or that we still are sinners obeying the law of sin and death with our own flesh. That bad news has been swallowed up by the good news that sin per se has been put away and that the blood of Jesus was poured out for the forgiveness of the sins of many, meaning all, in Romans 5.18 and 19 with Matthew 26.20 and 1 Timothy 2.6. Jesus' blood was poured out for the forgiveness of sins and sprinkled in heaven for the perpetual purification of the conscience from dead works and purifies the conscience from the bad news that untaught and unstable preachers want to report. They're just incomplete in their message. I'm not damning them. I'm not condemning them. I'm not even really mad at them because I was there too. Now, if Jesus was like the weak priests of the Levitical cultists, then he would have had to do what? He would have had to go to heaven to appear before the face of God many times. He'd have to go to the Father with his offering and say, I'll be back later and come back, come back again. Make a sacrifice, come back again. So the idea here is in Hebrews 9, if he had had to appear, if he was like the priests of the old Levitical cultist, the weak Levitical law, he would have had to appear before God many times because he would have in turn, had to offer himself as a sacrifice many times since the foundation of the world. And so the argument here, let's go back now to Hebrews 9. All of this is exegesis of Hebrews 9, incidentally. Hebrews 9, 24 and 25. And the argument here in Hebrews 9, 25 to 26 is what we call in debate, and some of you may be in debate club or something, you probably understand, reductio ad absurdum. Reductio ad absurdum. That means I'm going to take your logic and reduce it to an absurdity. And that's exactly what the Hebrews author does here. He shows the logic of going back to offer sacrifices under the Levitical law, to go back and revert to those sacrifices, that logic to be absurd. And he does it by Hebrews 9:25 to 26. It's a reductio ad, absurdum, ad absurdum. It reduces the logic, so-called, of returning to the Levitical cultus to an absurdity, to a surd, as Lonergan would call it. Jesus went into the true holy of holies, the one in heaven, to offer himself to God. And we have to understand here there are two things happening. The sacrifice of Jesus on earth, on the cross, suspended between heaven and earth. And after that, the offering of himself having made that sacrifice as the great archpriest before the Father. He appeared once before the Father having made a sacrifice. Now, if he was like the old priest that went in once a year to appear before God in the Holy of Holies, he would have had to offer many sacrifices. But he offered one sacrifice. He sacrificed himself once, and so he only offers himself once and for all to God the Father in heaven to represent us in the nunc stands in a now that is forever and ever and ever and ever, always representing us. And so his once and for all offering of himself to God as the great archpriest in heaven followed his once and for all sacrifice as the Lamb of God on earth. He is, as we've seen, both the sacrifice and the priest, just as he is also the judge and the judged for us. The judge and the judged. Remember, sin was condemned in his flesh because he, the judge, was judged. And the time is coming and now is. When the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. Why does it say now is? Because resurrection is now as well as coming. It's now. 
The dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. So what happened when your loved one left this life? They heard the voice of the Son of God and lived in what? In resurrection. And the time not only is coming, but it now is. The last day isn't coming down the road as a last day. It is now and will be. He shall raise them up on the last day. That's another thing. We got another thing coming. And that's time. God's time as opposed to man's time. There is God's time. There is Jesus' time. There is our time. And we are given time and allotted time to be witnesses on this earth. And then time's up. And you will find that you were witnesses of his when you didn't think you were. And others will think they were and weren't. And that's what's going to happen when we all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive what we did in our bodies, whether good or bad. 2 Corinthians 5.10. Soften that, you say. No. Now, this is where similarity to the Levitical cultist comes to a full stop. There are some similarities, but it comes to a full stop here. Jesus entered into the heavenly holy of holies and offered himself to God once and for all because he had given himself once and for all as the sacrifice for sins. Did you hear that? Jesus entered into the heavenly holy of holies, heaven itself, once and for all because he had given himself once and for all as the sacrifice for sins, to put away sin once and for all and forever. Jesus Christ yesterday was he in whom sin was destroyed. Jesus Christ today is he in whom sin was destroyed. Jesus Christ forever is he in whom sin was destroyed forever. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is that today, and he is that forever. If Jesus were like one of the many archpriests of the order of Aaron rather than the unique priest after the order of Melchizedek, he would have had to offer himself with the blood of a sacrificial animal once a year. As it is, though, he offered himself or gave, sacrificed himself once to put away sin, and then, having been raised from the dead by the God of peace with the blood of the everlasting covenant, he went into heaven itself, now to appear in an everlasting now that never needs to be repeated. He never has to go into heaven again to appear for us, because if he did, he would have to go back and sacrifice himself many times. And then it says, from the foundation of the world. What he's saying here is Jesus made one sacrifice forever from the foundation of the world to the end of time. Not many sacrifices, one a year throughout history. And so he has finished the work. It is finished comes into focus a lot more dramatically. So look at Hebrews 9.26b. 9, but as it is now, there is therefore now no condemnation because God condemns sin in Jesus. Here's that word nun, de, nun, n-u-n, de, nun, de. As it is now, that's in the everlasting now. Once, back to back, now and once. Once, hapax. At the termini of the ages, the end of the old age, the beginning of the new, the inauguration of the new, which is consummated in the parousia of Christ. Now, once at the termini of the ages, he appeared or he was manifested for the removal of sin. The way the Greek text reads it is this way. But as it is now, at the termini of the ages... For the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself, he has been manifested. In the Greek, the last word is manifested, pephanerote. Please note that in Hebrews 9.24, the offering of himself in Hebrews 9.25 is distinguished from the sacrifice of himself offering of himself here I am father in heaven 
having sacrificed himself. The sacrifice of himself, Thusia, is the sacrifice of himself on Calvary's cross where he endured the wages of sin. Having done that, having known that it was finished in, Hebrew, in John 9.28, and then having said it is finished in 1930, he bowed his head in death, physical death. Then, on the third day, the God of peace, who had effected reconciliation by that death, the reconciliation of the world, did what? Brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus, with the blood of the everlasting covenant, with the effects of his sacrifice. So there's a distinction here in this case. Sacrifice, or thusia, is what Jesus did once on earth at the cross. Offering prosphora is what he did once, having made that sacrifice, offered himself to God, saying, here I am, that sacrifice. And he not only when he said, here I am, in Isaiah 8.18, quoted in Hebrews 2.13, what did he say? Here I am with the children you've given me. Here I am with everybody else, justified, with life, here I am, in me, all will be made alive. Here I am, Father, but not me only, them too. Who's them? All of them. A close loved one told us once about her mom passing into the presence of the Lord. She was with her mom when she left. And the last words were, they're all there. They're all there. <laughs> you wonder who's there. They're all there. It's all, they're already already all there. They're already all there. Now it's true that we're all here because we're not all there. Think about that one for a minute or two. I know that's why I'm, I'm here. All of me is here because I'm not all there. I'm not all there, so I am here, but I'm thinking about being all there with all that are there because that's my hope. You say, say that again. I can't, I'll never say that. I can never say that again in a million years. So let's close by looking at Hebrews 9, 24 to 25, back to back together. For the Messiah did not enter a sanctuary made by hands, a mere replica of the true, a mere replica of the true as the archpriest of the order of Aaron did under the law that was weak on Yom Kippur every year. The Messiah, Jesus, did not enter a sanctuary made by hands, a mere replica of the true, but into heaven itself. Now, that means in the ever ongoing present to appear before the face of God for us, not to offer, prospero means, not to offer himself many times. That, that's not referring to the cross here. This is referring to him going into heaven itself to offer himself. He goes to heaven to offer himself as the one who sacrificed himself on earth. So there's a two-part thing going on here. There's a distinction. Sometimes the distinction's maintained, sometimes it's not. Sometimes the sacrifice and the offering, the burial, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and exaltation are considered as one single event. That's okay. Sometimes they're distinguished as separate events. The sacrifice, Thusia, of himself on the cross and the offering of himself in heaven after resurrection, having made that sacrifice and being accepted by God on behalf of us all. Now, why this distinction? Because we already made another distinction. The pouring out of the blood results in the forgiveness of sins. The pouring out of the blood has to do with the sacrifice that he made while on earth on the cross. And the purification of sins comes by the sprinkling of the blood. That happened in heaven when he went to heaven. The sprinkling of the blood is for the purification of the conscience. And the Sprinkling of the blood relates to his offering of himself in heaven, while the pouring out of his blood relates to his sacrifice of himself on earth. So the whole idea here of the reasoning is, look, if you want to go back and imitate the Levitical cultists where they go in once a year and 
offer a sacrifice and then go in and offer themselves to God. The priest goes in for you and offers himself, and they do this again and again and again, then you're, you're absurd. This is absurd to do this because Jesus Christ, having made one sacrifice for all sin forever and for all people forever and for all time and for the whole cosmos, and then entered once into the Holy of Holies, if he's got to keep entering once into the Holy of Holies, that would mean that he's got to suffer and die many, many times since the foundation of the world. That's absurd. So the pastor's doing his job here by saying, don't do that. Politicians say the word don't. They don't mean it. They don't mean it. They can't mean it. They can't back up their words. They're weak, especially today. But this writer said, don't go back. And I think his words had effect because the Holy Spirit carried him home. So let me close again. 924, for the Messiah did not enter a sanctuary made by hands, a mere replica of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the everlasting now before the face of God for us, not to offer Prospero himself, Hauton, many times, Palakas as typified by the action of the Levitical order of priesthood who enters into the sanctuary yearly. Notice how I've expanded that for your understanding. Not to offer himself many times as typified by the action of the archpriest of the Levitical order who enters into the sanctuary yearly with the blood belonging to another for if that were the case, 926a, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world or the creation of the integral cosmos, the two-halved cosmos, heavens and earth. And obviously, he doesn't appear, go into heaven once and for all, again and again, because that would mean he'd have to suffer, which he did in his death many times. So here's the picture, and I'll close with this. Here's the picture. Jesus appeared once at the termini of the ages, the end point of the old covenant age, the starting point or point of origin of the new covenant. He appeared once at the termini of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, thusia auton, sacrifice of himself. He then entered into heaven itself to offer himself. Different word from sacrifice here, prosphere, from prospero related to prosphora. He offered himself once in, the, in heaven, not many times. He offered himself once and for all, having sacrificed himself once. The sprinkled blood in heaven relates to his offering of himself to the Father in heaven, having poured out his blood in a sacrifice of himself on earth, which he put away the sin of the whole world. Put away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God took away the sin of the world, the sin of the world, the sin of the cosmos. Purified the heavens and the earth. Reconciled every being in the heavens and earth, visible and invisible to himself by the blood of his cross. So I have to say it again. Let me hammer this nail one more time. Here's the picture. Jesus appeared once at the termini of the ages to put away sin per se, sin itself, by the sacrifice of himself, thusia, sacrifice, autu of himself, Hebrews 9.26b. He then entered heaven itself to offer himself to God once. Not many times, Hebrews 9.25, and that goes back to Hebrews 9.14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the offering of himself once to God, purify your conscience? The sprinkled blood, the offering of himself to God once in Hebrews 9.14 refers to his offering of himself in heaven with the sprinkled blood. Hebrews 9.26 refers to the sacrifice of himself, the sin offering once and for all by which sin was condemned, put away, he was made sin to put away sin. And then he, after a resurrection, presents himself to God as an offering, having sacrificed himself. He offered himself once for all, having sacrificed himself once, having suffered, oh yes, by experiencing death as the wages of sin once and for all, 
for everyone once since the foundation of the world. Once since the foundation of the world means he did this once for all the sins committed since the foundation of the world, all the way up to the consummation of all things in his parousia. All sins, all people, everywhere at all time. He now appears continually before the face of God without spot for us, having sacrificed himself once and for all to become sin for us. He will appear, says verse 28, thank God, he will appear a second time without sin, meaning having, not having to deal with sin again, bringing salvation to all who are waiting for him. And we're going to show in future messages what that means. It means all humanity of all times. And that is all beings who have lived in all places in the integral cosmos from its creation to its consummation. He will appear a second time to make, as what Barth said, to make evident to all what he did in his death. So his goal is not just death, to quote Barth again, although this is the saving event to which his whole life was in the first instance directed. His goal is the subsequent revelation of the meaning of his death and therefore the putting into effect of the salvation won in him for humanity, for the community, for the whole world for which he had come as the fulfiller of time. And we expect imminently the second appearing of our great archpriest. And thank you, Father. Keep us in that imminent expectation. May we not fail in that imminent expectation. And we recognize that maintaining that expectation in our hearts requires our constant attentiveness to your word, a constant reception of what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And the Spirit is saying to the church and with the church, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Maranatha may stand for the benediction song.